This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm your host for this week, Pratusha Yalamanchi. I'm a fourth year med student here at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and an MBA student at the Wharton School. The Business of Healthcare is live every Tuesday at noon Eastern, right here on Sirius XM 111. If you have a question or a comment during today's show, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. Our phone lines are open. So today we're going to be continuing our discussion of women in healthcare leadership. While data shows that the majority of people working in the healthcare industry today are women, very few actually make it to the top. In fact, women make up 80% of today's healthcare workforce, yet only 24% of executives in the C-suite are women, according to a 2016 McKinsey study. So we're here today to look beyond the numbers and learn from the experiences of women leading in healthcare and discuss solutions to disparities in healthcare leadership. My guest is a leader in many ways in the healthcare field. Dr. Carol Bradford is the Executive Vice Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Michigan Medical School. She's an internationally recognized head and neck cancer surgeon and a researcher with over 200 publications in the field. She was the first woman elected president of the American Head and Neck Society and has been recognized countless times for her mentorship and leadership in healthcare delivery. Dr. Bradford, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be on this uh, show today. Great. So I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Dr. Bradford, um, we sort of mentioned this in the prompt, but the healthcare workforce is dominated by women, but few actually occupy leadership roles like you do. What made you interested in healthcare leadership? So that is a great question. I have always been uh, interested in leadership, uh, uh, you know, raising the question, are leaders uh, born or are they developed? And I think it's a combination of both things. Uh, When I was in medical school, I uh, served uh, at the University of Michigan on the student council, which we called, uh, I was a class advocate. Uh, When I was a resident, uh, again at the University of Michigan uh, Otolaryngology Residency Training Program, I was elected chief resident uh, my senior uh, year. Um, So I've just really always uh, uh, enjoyed leadership roles, always thought about opportunities to serve and make things run more smoothly. and help uh, make a difference uh, in the world of healthcare, medicine, and medical education. And I think that's what's really driven uh, me uh, throughout uh, my career to explore leadership opportunities. Sure, that's that's wonderful. And yeah, we've sort of heard that as a theme of leaders being both born and developed throughout their careers. Do you have any stories of um, any times that you were asked to join healthcare leadership roles uh, where you had to weigh patient care and also taking on new administrative responsibilities? So yes, it's always been a balance and um, whenever you take on a new role or responsibilities, uh, responsibility, you can't keep adding things to your plate. You actually sometimes have to uh, take some things off your plate. Sure. Um, I'm pleased that I am actually uh, continued to serve patients, and I have clinic on Mondays, and I operate every other Wednesday. And so that's actually been a source of great joy uh, to me in my career that I continue to stay active clinically. so, um, you know, what, what, what was it, um, you know, uh, what story, you know, probably um, in my field, which is otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, it, it's probably true that I, uh, throughout my career, did aspire to be 
chair. Um, the position that I currently hold is really one that I didn't really plan upon. It was there was a reorganization of the leaders leadership structure at Michigan Medicine and this new position, uh, which is Executive Vice Dean for Academic Affairs, opened up. And then it was really uh, a question of uh, should I throw my hat in the ring or should I keep doing uh, a job, I, a, a role I really loved, which was uh, serving as chair of uh, the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the University of Michigan. And I reflected uh, a lot and uh, did decide to throw my hat in the ring. I feel very fortunate to have been selected to this new role, and it's a role I've held for a little less than two years. It is a role that challenges me every day, um, uh, where uh, I have an opportunity uh, to make a positive difference and to positively impact research, education, and clinical care, as well as service and uh, people. Um, with the latter being the most uh, important, uh, perhaps, of all. Um, but, you know, uh, you know op opportunity knocks, and sometimes uh, we open the door, and, and at this juncture I did uh, choose to open the door. And I continue to be active in all aspects of medicine and clinical care and research and teaching, but just all at a reduced capacity due to my significant leadership role. Absolutely. And for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be Executive Vice Dean for Academic Affairs? Absolutely. That's a great question. <laughs> so I like to speak of that in terms of overseeing faculty and learners at our uh, medical school. So all of our faculty, of which there are nearly 3,000, and all of our learners, of which there are medical students, graduate students, uh, uh, postdoctoral uh, trainees, and uh, residents. And actually, uh, faculty and staff are learners as well. We're all, we believe in lifelong learning. So I oversee the faculty uh, part, which is uh, recruitment, promotion, and uh, faculty development, as well as education and global initiatives. So it's a pretty big role and position. Um, there are 20 clinical departments nine basic science departments. Uh, there is a chief scientific officer who is the lead, uh, the executive vice dean for research, who is uh, a, a colleague and peer of mine. Um, we have 40 centers and institutes. So needless to say, uh, it's important to have a great team because uh, that's a lot of work to do. And I report to my boss, who is the Dean and the Executive Vice President for Medical Affairs and the uh, CEO of what we call Michigan Medicine, which is our academic medical center. Great. That is an incredible amount of responsibility and a, a lot of people to be in charge of. Uh, Dr. Bradford, did you face any unique barriers or opportunities in your career, whether it was the ability to find mentors or navigate large organizations? This doesn't specifically have to be gender-related. Great. That's a great question. I feel like I was richly blessed to have great mentors, sponsors, and coaches. And so, um, and those in my career often crossed gender boundaries just because there were few, if any, women mentors, coaches, coaches and role models. So that for me was not a barrier, but I think having uh, role models, coaches, mentors, and sponsors is one of the most important things one needs as one um, builds a career in uh, medicine, healthcare, or academic medicine. Um, 
And I, while there were not as many women when I came through, I graduated from medical school in 1986 and I entered a surgical discipline. When I joined the faculty in the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery in 1992, I was essentially the only female faculty. We had a few female fellows. We had a few people that were maybe uh, there for a short time, but I was essentially the only female faculty member at that point in time. But I felt supported um, despite that and uh, certainly found my way and pathway forward. And I had many leadership opportunities. I was chief at the VA hospital. I was uh, coordinated the residency program. I oversaw medical student education. I became division chief of head and neck surgery, which was the division I served in, and ultimately associate chair for clinical programs and education in the department. So it seemed like the doors were wide open for me. And then I did encounter a a bit of uh, a a glass ceiling as I threw my um, hat in the ring, uh, as it were, for uh, department positions. And I would also say um, I probably wasn't, uh, I hadn't developed great interviewing skills at that juncture. but I, you know, but I think there was also a barrier in terms of uh, perhaps people wondering if I could actually be an effective chair or leader. Um, interestingly, I didn't make the short uh, list for chair at my home institution. I'm grateful to say I ultimately was offered that role and accepted and served in that capacity for seven and a half years prior to moving uh, up in the organization into the dean's office. Um, And so um, um, glass ceilings can be overcome. Um, uh, I think that um, the reasons behind uh, glass ceilings, if one believes they do exist, are complex. One of the things that I now take a proactive approach in at our school is uh, best practices for faculty searches. And one of the the key elements to that, there are many key elements, is making sure that all members of a search committee have implicit or unconscious bias training. Um, Because we think that that's really an important element to um, searches. We also want um, our search committees themselves to be to have diversity of thought, gender, and uh, all aspects of representation. Absolutely. Um, the best practices and faculty leadership initiatives that you seem to be working on really resonate. Um, we, I've looked at, I've seen a number of studies that have shown that women, when women occupy executive leadership, then middle level management is often more likely to in, have women as well. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems like you are really championing that. I, I wanted to go back to um, what was it like to be the first, fa- back in 1992, to be the first faculty member in the department who was female? That's such a great question. So there would be um, big faculty dinners at that point, you know, like your group practice dinner. We'd go out to a a local restaurant, and it would literally be a long table (laughs) of, like, you know, 20 men and me. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It was a bit awkward, Um, you know, uh, candidly, you know, there were occasional off-color jokes that I wasn't totally comfortable uh, with, but never directed at me, sure. and um, that was just the culture of the day. But I, um, you know, I, uh, again, I was blessed to find great sponsors, mentors, people who really cared deeply about me and my career. So I think that that helped 
immensely uh, for me in sort of changing uh, the paradigm. And then, you know, it wasn't long before we had women residents and more and more women faculty. And I can tell you, currently in the department, we have, um, we don't have parity, but we have many, many, many women faculty, women residents. Um, uh, so we, we're much, and we, we, we embrace diversity. One of our, my, my former late uh, chair when I was a resident, uh, Charles Krause, really before it was popular, created a diversity committee that exists in the department to this day. And it was really, I think, transformational for the department. And now the school, of course, has a whole uh, initiative in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But back then, we were thoughtful and intentional about diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. I think that really helped find our pathway forward. Absolutely, and I would, that's a perfect segue for the importance of gender diversity and leadership, which is our next question, but I'd like to do a quick reset. For those just joining in, you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Pradushi Alamanchi, and I'm speaking with Dr. Carol Bradford from the University of Michigan Medical School about gender disparity in healthcare leadership. Feel free to join our conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so Dr. Bradford, like you were saying, the um, Michigan is known for really um, advancing and promoting gender diversity in healthcare leadership, and you yourself have chap- championed that in terms of faculty recruitment. Um, from your own experience, um, I think sometimes people take for granted that gender diversity in leadership can be useful. Um, in, from your or, own experience, is it does it matter to have gender diversity in healthcare leadership, and why? Right. So I think um, I think diversity, um, gender, and all diversity is really an important culture and value uh, that we need to uphold, and perhaps the value is actually inclusivity. Um, I do really believe that it is important that our um, healthcare workforce uh, represents or or looks like, if you will, um, the uh, patients and cultures it serves. I think that there is richness and diversity of thought, approach, background, gender, uh, sexual orientation. I think that it just totally uh, makes a gigantic difference in how we approach um, medicine, uh, scientific discovery, um, and uh, uh, education. And so I think it is vitally important. Um, I can't tell you how much I have learned from all of the wonderful people I've had the privilege of interacting with throughout my professional career. And um, it's, in fact, one of the best parts of my career. And people... Uh, have unique perspectives that I would have never um, uh, thought up, if you will, on my own. And so, you know, there's really robust data, uh, as you say, that uh, diversity uh, and culture and inclusion improves financial and operational performance, which is obviously really important. But I think it really adds value to who comes in our doors as patients and families seeking care, and our learners who are going to be uh, the healthcare um, uh, workforce of the future and uh, the, uh, the people who will transform health and healthcare and make those uh, brilliant uh, scientific discoveries and be our future leaders. So I think it is 
unbelievably important. Um, I'm pleased to say that uh, David Brown here at the University of Michigan is our um, leader uh, at Michigan Medicine for of the Office for Health Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity. Every single department and uh, and unit has a diversity and an inclusion action plan. And again, what what I'm describing is a lot of thoughtful approach to um, uh, the the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That includes gender for sure. Absolutely. And just to share a story, um, when I interviewed for residency, Dr. Brown actually interviewed me. And um, among all of my residency interviews, he was the only question I, he presented the only question um, I heard about promoting about how we can promote gender diversity or any kind of diversity in healthcare. And it was, it was very thoughtfully included, and I think that was important for many residents, um, future residents, to hear. Well, that's that's so wonderful, and so uh, perhaps we could share with the audience that you and I have actually met in person once. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to share the news of where you're going to do your residency training if you want to do that. Yeah, I would love to share. Yeah, so um, I matched into residency in the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the University of Michigan, and um, I'm originally from Michigan, uh, but more so than just going back home, I was so incredibly impressed by the department, um, the surgical training, and just the whole department's uh, inclusive atmosphere. So again, I, I don't think that there's any stronger message about why it matters. I mean, you and and, and think. I mean, you've just said be, it was because of how that the place when you came to interview how you felt. And I think that that is just so vitally important. People want to be valued. People want to be recognized. People want to be included. And that that people want to lead in their own right. Not, not everybody is going to be a dean or an executive dean or a leader of a healthcare organization, but we actually fundamentally believe that leadership matters in all that we do. So everybody that enters our doors, we believe, can be leaders of important initiatives and in transforming health and health care. And so we're really, really engaged in leadership development for all. Absolutely. And I felt like that was such a strong selling point for me. And I feel like as surgeons in training, um, i think the skills of leadership are useful in the operating room alone and as well as in larger capacities. Um, yes. But for, uh, for our next question, is there any specific reasons that, Dr. Bradford, that you can point to for sort of the disparity between women's representation in the healthcare workforce versus healthcare leadership. Uh, my own medical school class is actually majority woman by one student, uh-huh. um, and we have more applicants for med school who are women than men. Um, but it seems like as people move up the sort of healthcare experience and leadership trajectory, there seem to be fewer and fewer women in those roles. Right. So that's a great question. And um, so I, I think for gender diversity in healthcare, there's most medical schools now are very close to 50-50. Ours is very similar to your ratio. So we have a few more women than men uh, in our medical school classes. But we do know that when you look at professors in academic medical centers and in healthcare leadership, especially from the faculty side of the equation, um, that the numbers uh, plummet. Um, And the rates are worse in surgical department than non-surgical departments. Um, And so it's a leaky pipeline. Um, And so the question is, why is it a leaky pipeline? And I think that there are a myriad of issues that we are only beginning to 
address, but we care deeply about it and we want to address these matters in meaningful ways. So we have programs for leadership development. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I think um, one's career trajectory is really a personal choice and one should fulfill their career aspirations rather than somebody else's career aspirations. And so my, so the question really is, you know, for women that wish to pursue leadership opportunities, what are the barriers? And I think one is a leaky pipeline, one is lack of mentorship, sponsorship, and coaches. So mentors give you advice, sage advice. Sponsors are the ones that promote you. So they, they're, they're the ones that say, that nominate you for a position. Um, and coaches sort of give you guidance, sort of positive and negative, like what are you doing well or what, what sh- should you be doing differently? Um, so women uh, are thought not to have uh, as many uh uh, mentors, sponsors, and coaches as as men. I have un- I, I've read or understand that, um, but I think that uh, it's possibly because uh, maybe we don't ask, or um, it's also I, I went through um, uh, women in academic leadership uh, uh, training. I went through the Drexel course called ELAM, Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine, and that's when I learned uh, what I consider a real pearl, which is graceful self-promotion. So we, uh, I don't like to brag or boast, and I don't recommend others do that either. But there is a critical role when um, you want to have a role or volunteer for a role called graceful self-promotion. I have heard it said that, again, there are gender differences in uh, applying for a job. I've heard it said, again, I won't attest to this or not, that sometimes men will apply for positions when they have most of the qualifications. But women, again, I think there are gender differences here, are are unlikely to apply for the role unless they meet or exceed all of the job qualifications. And so I think part of it is uh, us, and part of it is uh, I do think that we have learned a lot in our processes to look at search committees to make sure that they are diverse in structure, that they, that our search committees ask um, criterion-based questions and that people have unconscious bias training. So I think because if women interview for leadership roles and aren't selected, again, that also doesn't change gender diversity in sure. leadership. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I think... Um, as more and more in- attention is paid to diversity in general and gender diversity specifically, I, I really believe in conversations and dialogue um, help change uh, will help change the face of academic medicine. Yeah, dialogue is so important. I I have this is the first time I'm hearing this phrase of graceful self-promotion. Um, can you tell us a little bit, what what does it look like to gracefully self-promote? Well, I'm probably still not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I did the bio for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so what I would say is that, um, so there is um, a role or a position that you actually, so I, I actually did it once. I'll tell you when I did it. Um, I mentioned that I was chair of the department uh, for seven and a half years, and then our organization structure changed, and there was the new rule, role I currently occupy. And so um, I thought I might be interested in the role, and so I did um, place a call or an email to um, the dean, 
who would be hiring this uh, position. And I, I didn't say I was interested, but I called and asked to set up a meeting, and I said I wanted to learn more about that role. So I would say prior to ELAM and other uh, uh, leadership development uh, opportunities, I've been lucky to be involved with. I'm not sure I would have had the courage or self-esteem to actually throw my own hat in the ring. Um, uh, when I did meet uh, with uh, our dean, Marshall Rungi, um, by that time, um, I'd sort of talked myself out of the interest in the role, and I um, said, I'm not sure I'm interested because I'm really happy being chair, but I think these are the key qualities and characteristics of this role, uh, servant leader, and really caring about, you know, the institution. It can't be about, you know, the leader themselves. It really has to be about the vision and mission of the organization. And what was interesting is he had done his homework and he invited me to apply and asked me to turn in my CV and write a cover letter. And I, I obviously did do that. But that was an example of just throwing your hat in the ring sometimes. Pe women sometimes don't do that because maybe they don't feel that they will have a chance. Absolutely. Um, so we just need to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be continuing our discussion about gender disparity in healthcare leadership with Dr. Carol Bradford, Vice Dean of the University of Michigan, an Executive Vice Dean at the University of Michigan Medical School. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Welcome back. This is the Business of Healthcare here on Sirius XM 111. I'm Pratushi Almonte, your host for today's show. I'm a fourth-year med student here at the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA student at the Wharton School. If you'd like to join our conversation today, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. So I'm continuing our conversation about women leading in healthcare with Dr. Carol Bradford, Vice Dean at the University of Michigan Med School and a respected head and neck surgeon. So just before we went on break, um, we had been talking about for women who are working in healthcare and interested in pursuing healthcare leadership strategies for how they can get there. And Dr. Bradford had talked about this um, concept of graceful self-promotion. And Dr. Bradford, I thought it was so interesting. You shared a story of um, how you quote, gracefully self-promoted yourself, but really it was what you had done was um, set up a meeting to learn more about a role that you were interested in. Um, and I don't know if, I, I don't know if I would, I would call that self-promotion at all. Um, and if like, if your list of past credentials of being chair and all of these things are not credentials enough for the role, um, I guess for women who are seeking those positions, like what is appropriate, what what credentials are sufficient, or when is it that we can actually self-promote um, was interesting. I, uh, I have actually seen in just the MBA program a lot of, of studies around healthcare leadership. And when I was in college, just even for our own student government people, just anecdotally, um, first years freshmen would come in and um, men were twice as likely to run for student government as women were. Mm -hmm. And these are 18-year-olds um, mm -hmm. who have all been selected for the same leadership potential. But I ended up doing a study about it and finding out that women felt like they weren't qualified to serve mm -hmm. in student government being freshmen. Um, but men felt like it would be an interesting opportunity and a place to learn and so we're more likely to pursue the role. Um, do you think that there, uh, how, are there strategies for women to even consider sort of graceful self-promotion or to think about being qualified for leadership roles? Yes, and some, you know, part of, I think part of it is just, you know, go for it, believe in yourself. This is, I think, where 
role models, mentors, and particularly sponsors can help. But, um, you know, I fundamentally believe that um, life is about pursuit of dreams. And if you, it's okay to dream big, and it's okay to throw your hat in, in the ring. Um, it's like high risk, high reward. Um, so if you really, really want to serve on a committee of a national organization or run for office at a national organization or a state society or run a practice plan, you know, try it. Go for it. Do it. Um, get advice. Be well prepared. Be thoughtful about your skill set. And I actually think grow your skill set. Take advantage of leadership development opportunities. At Michigan, at one point, there was an institute for healthcare leadership in partnership with a with our business school, our fabulous Ross School of Business. And that was a curriculum where we went to the business school for a long, you know, uh, Thursday, Friday, perhaps every month. And I got a certificate and I learned a lot in that. I also uh, requested uh, to be the school's candidate for uh, the ELAM program, Executive Leadership and Academic medicine at Drexel University, I was, again, felt fortunate to be selected. So I think one really has to raise their hand and put themselves out there and forward and seek advice and then um, have, you know, you know, have the confidence to believe that you really can do it. Um, there's this thing called imposter syndrome, probably sure. uh, many are aware of it, where people think that they're an imposter in the role, like like if somebody really figured out that I really don't know what I'm really doing as executive vice dean. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's our, our inner selves uh, displaying lack of self-confidence. Nobody knows all the answers. Nobody is an expert in everything. Uh, we can always continuously improve ourselves by reading, by executive coaching, by listening to advice of others. But I think um, it's really, uh, I love, you know, I love the graceful self-promotion piece. And I'll, I'll tell us, you know, I was co-director of the Head and Neck Oncology Program in our comprehensive cancer center. And we were really doing some really great translational research and great clinical trials and still are and great, we had really uh, garnered market share at, at, the Comprehensive Cancer Center in the entire state for head and neck oncology care. We'd built a great team. And the challenge was is that nobody knew it. And so it was, again, many, many years ago, a light bulb moment. Like the only way for people to know the, the great care we provide, the great transformative research we're doing, um, and the great educational opportunities in this head and neck cancer arena is if we gracefully tell people. It was a light bulb moment. Like what you want, you think people know, but you actually don't tell them. And so uh, once you developed your uh, elevator speech or storyline, then the amazing thing is that sometimes then you hear other people tell say your elevator speech which is wonderful because that means they've heard it and they've listened to it and they believe it and so i think the elevator speech which is just a short short you know bullet point speech about um the values you can bring to an organization are a really good uh strategy of graceful self-promotion Oh, that's great. Yeah, the elevator pitch is a concept that I learned in, that I hadn't heard in medical school, um, but was pretty prevalent here at the business school. And um, I think in med school, we had this idea of 
like any sort of promotion or marketing was time spent away from patient care or potentially uh-huh. um, frowned upon uh, or like not quite as um, academic as just patient care and research. Um, uh-huh. But like you said, if no one knows about it, then it's hard to recruit and it's hard to provide access to care. Right, right, exactly. It turns out it's really important. Communications is really important. Uh, People need to know uh, what you're doing, what your goals, visions, aspirations are. And the only way to do that is to tell people. And there's very many forums for telling a story. But I think telling a story is actually a really important part. Yeah, the narrative, it's yeah, it's super useful. Um, for those of us in training, Dr. Bradford, do you have any tips for, I know you talked about the graceful self-promotion and really kind of leaning in and raising our hands and getting involved when we see positions or opportunities that feel interesting. Um, any other tips for those of us in training, maybe around finding mentors uh-huh, or uh-huh. sponsors? Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. So You know, the dilemma of training programs is assigned mentors or no, and and how does a learner go about identifying a a mentor? And I can tell you that it is, uh, in my career, um, there there are regularly medical students, residents, junior faculty, senior faculty who reach out and ask, and both at my institution and nationally that ask me to serve in some sort of a mentorship, sponsorship capacity. So I think, you know, um, uh, mentorship is really a reciprocal learning relationship and and it's a partnership and uh, a mentor-mentee work together to collaborate, develop skills, and uh, achieve mutually defined goals. And so um, I think it's really important, um, and I think you can have more than one mentor. So my advice for you and other people uh, entering uh, residency and in uh, our lifelong journey of learning is seek out Mentors, and you can have mentors for all sorts of things in your life. You can have it for your subspecialty interest or specialty interest. You can have it for your research interest. You can have it for work life balance issues. You can have a sponsor or a mentor for wellness. Uh, it's important to have friends outside of medicine. It's, it's, so you can have all sorts of people in your life, um, and I call this no man or woman is an island, and build your village of family, friends, colleagues, role models, mentors, and sponsors, and start right out from the gate. From the gate, Your peers, the residents, will be your mentors. Um, uh, and I think that is absolutely, you, you have to build a support net network. Um, there will be days that uh, it's really easy um, and you experience great joy and there are other days where um, it seems pretty hard and pretty tough and things don't go as we expect and you need people in your life uh, for all of all of those days and, and those in the middle. The Village of Mentorship. I will definitely remember that. For those just joining in, you're listening to The Business of Healthcare here on Sirius XM 111. I'm Pratushi Alamanchi, and I'm joined by Dr. Carol Bradford from the University of Michigan Medical School discussing women in healthcare leadership. Feel free to join our conversation at one eight four four wharton uh, Dr. Bradford, I really like the phrase you used of mentorship being a reciprocal learning relationship for mentor and mentee. Um, uh, in conversations we've had before uh, with women in medicine, um, sometimes the burden of mentorship has come up as a topic. Um, uh-huh. To speak specifically about that, um, one of 
my mentors is actually is a general surgeon, and she was saying that um, there was last last year there was an Amtrak train crash in Philadelphia, and a lot of the general surgery residents who were on trauma um, saw a lot of patients who were going through like very difficult trauma recovery situations, and a lot of the uh, residents actually came to her. And when she brought it up to um, her uh, fellow um, her fellow surgeons in the department, they expressed that they hadn't heard from the residents. Uh-huh. And she talked about the fact that um, a lot of the residents see her as a maternal figure. Uh-huh. And so whether they're men or women, they often go to her. Uh-huh. And uh, it's while she finds found the relationship rewarding, it was often think she would think about her residence like late into the night and the time that she spent mentorship was not time that went into her tenure was compensated and she talked about that um, sometimes the burden of mentorship is placed on women in healthcare. Uh-huh. Um, do you do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so I think that that there is likely some truth in that um, and um, you know, uh, there the you know so it's the maternalism uh, that is associated with uh, gender differences, perhaps. Um, so I think again, it's a two-way street. Uh, um, I do think that there probably is probably not equally distributed. My personal view on that is I try to do everything um, possible while maintaining my own personal wellness and balance. So I try to say yes to mentorship uh, roles and responsibilities much more than no. I think the, the situation you mentioned is really sort of a unique, catastrophic one sure. where there was a, lot, a great need at once. And I think that my process for that would be to really invite colleagues, professionals, maybe, um, uh, and and for debriefing events, because that's that's really a a real uh, tra- a very traumatic situation, and no one single faculty member should have. Is, is it realistic to bear a large burden with a catastrophic event? And so call in your team of professionals to help in debriefing and helping get through those very acute emotions. But I, I would say um, in my um, role as a mentor, it's probably um, some of my most cherished uh uh, relationships, and I think that I have gained more from those than I could possibly have ever given. And I think um, at the end of my career, I think those that I have mentored as well as helped as a patient or a provider or a faculty mentor, but your mentorship relationships really are your legacy. I think it's one of the most important things uh, I think I do. I have actually received mentorship awards. It's something I care deeply about. Um, and so I think, you know, within reason, I think that you gain so much from those relationships. I do think that there is probably unequal burden, but I think that it is a gift to be invited to serve as somebody's mentor. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, the the comment you mentioned of um, your legacy being the people that you mentor, often in academic medicines, mm-hmm. was something that um, when one of my mentors, when I was uh, first met him in the operating room, <coughs> he had talked about, he had asked me what a surgeon's legacy was, and mm-hmm. um, I had said maybe perfecting a technique or the being able to care for your patients, and he actually said, no, no, it's none of those things. It's, your legacy is the people you mentor, which is exactly what you had talked about. Right. So it's so funny. Um, my so when I was asked about what would be my legacy, I I was actually at my 
uh, first interview for the de- the chair position of the Department of Olaryngology. And uh, you recall earlier this hour I said it, I wasn't, I don't believe, a skilled interviewer. I, I had not uh, refined that skill set at that time. And um, so they, somebody asked me what would be my legacy. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, again, you if until you reflect on that question, you don't really have a great answer. But your people, the, your, the people that you've made a positive difference in, whether it's patients and families, learners, faculty, staff, those the the things that you've made a positive impact on are are ultimately your legacy and i think again one of your most cherished legacies are actually the people that you have mentored um and the reason i say that is i had um i think about the impact uh one of my primary mentors had on my career and his name is tom Carey. Uh, I met him as a medical student. He's a, a tumor biologist, head and neck tumor biologist and scientist um, who we have collaborated and worked together our entire career. Uh, he was nominated for and won a Distinguished Mentorship uh, Award here at the University of Michigan. He has fostered the careers of many, 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 many individuals who always talk about working in Tom Carey's lab and many department chairs across the world and an intramural uh, NIH investigator. And, um, you know, I view mentorship as sort of giving back uh, the gift that I uh, was so, so graciously received. And, you know, some of mentorship is, you know, generously giving of his time and energy. And he, and and what, what happens is that um, we, you know, my, uh, I pay that forward by uh, trying to provide my mentees time, space, engagement, and the best advice. And so, um, again, I really think uh, my advice for everybody uh, listening in today is to think about your legacy, to think about the difference mentorship can make in your life. And I think it is, and for people coming up into their careers or in the training aspects, you know, find those great uh, mentors that can really, who really take a personal interest in you and your career. Great. That reciprocal learning relationship that you talk about with mentorship and <clears throat> the graceful self-promotion are just two of the things that I'll take away today. Dr. Bradford, thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you. It has been a true uh, privilege, and I look forward to seeing you in July. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Bradford. I do too. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 